AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk. Comedians or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. What does every grocery store aisle now have in common? Products that come in paper packaging. And we don't just mean the obvious ones like cereal boxes and juice cartons. From beauty products to boxed water, there are more opportunities to go paper-tarian than ever before. So why should you? Because paper comes from a renewable resource and can be recycled up to seven times. Simply put, it's the smart choice for the environment. And it turns out, the easiest choice for you. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com slash papertarian. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, out on the wily, misty moors. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Joe McCormick, and our other host, Lauren Vogelbaum, is uh, not with us this time, but hopefully she will be back next time. Yes. Jonathan, I, I suspect you of equivocating on more. Uh, maybe a little bit, teeny tiny bit. Okay, so today we are going to be talking about Moore's Law. It won't be the first time on this podcast, probably won't be the last time, because it contributes very much to how we grapple with the future of consumer electronics and, and computer and, technology. And we've used, I mean, we being the humans in general, have used Moore's Law to kind of be shorthand for the progression of computational power for pretty much as long as it's been around. So yeah. 
Uh, we are specifically focusing on how it's going to go through a little bit of a transformation in the not-too-distant future, to quote MST3K. Jonathan recently wrote a piece for How Stuff Works Now about uh, a recent development in the world of people thinking about Moore's Law. Yeah, so first, before we even get into that, we should probably uh, chat a little bit about what Moore's Law is. The observation was originally made back in 1965. Uh, that's when Gordon Moore came up with this, uh, well, it really was just an observation, right? It wasn't a law. He was he, he noticed something and he wrote a paper about it. But um, maybe we should make it a law. Yeah. Well, we certainly have. No, um, you're right that it is not a physical law. It is right. more a, a, yeah, an observation or a prediction. Right. It's just a prediction that is held more true than not throughout the years. And so people refer to it like a law, kind of like Murphy's Law. Murphy's Law is not a real law. Moore's Law is not a real law. But uh, his, when Gordon Moore made that observation back in 1965, he was the director of research and development for Fairchild Semiconductor. He was also a co-founder of Fairchild. He would go on to be a co-founder of Intel. So here's a guy who was really, really smart about integrated circuits. Right. Uh, integrated circuits were a relatively new thing because transistors had not been around that long before then. You're talking about vacuum tubes. And so uh, he was taking a look at this and seeing that there was an interesting situation going on. He wrote an article for Electronics Magazine, and it has one of my favorite titles of all time for technical uh, articles. It's Cramming More Components Onto Integrated Circuits. Mm -hmm. There's nothing delicate about that. Cramming. (laughs) Yeah, cramming is such a great word. You get this image of Gordon Moore with a bag full of components, and he's reaching in and pulling out fistfuls and trying to cram them into a machine. Yeah, maybe he has like a real large wooden mallet sitting by just in case, you know. But that's not quite the the actual <laughs> way that this is being done. but No, he was talking – in fact, I think he was talking as much about economics as he was about technology. In fact, he was talking more about economics. Yeah. More M-O-R-E, not M-O-O-R-E in this case. Uh, yeah, he was talking about economics primarily because he wanted to see – uh, where the price point fell on an individual component. At what point in a, de- in the density of a, an integrated circuit do you have the best price per component so that your, your circuit that you're done with is at, uh, its lowest cost, right? The lowest price to, to make it. And there's a certain rule that he saw that you had to hit a certain volume in order for that price to come down. It's kind of like if you're buying in bulk. Yeah. You know, if you're buying in bulk, you know, you buy more, the individual cost of each individual item is lower. But that's he, why it makes so much more sense to buy that barrel of cheese balls than right. a small little can of cheese balls. Uh, buy, buy the hot tub sized uh, mayonnaise jar and <laughs> put it in the garage. Yeah, it's always a great idea. Uh, well, he noticed that there was a certain volume at which the, the components would be at their ideal cost. But it, it was a sweet spot. Like if you went too much over that, then the finished integrated circuit would be too expensive. Mm-hmm. If it were too too much under that, it would also be that the individual price per component would be too high, thus making the finished circuit too expensive. But he also knows that not only was there a sweet spot, that sweet spot moved over time. There was an incentive for companies to to develop more powerful processors. There was a need in the marketplace, which meant that there were uh, economic factors that pushed the development of more sophisticated 
um, uh, approaches to manufacturing transistors and and uh, and integrated circuits. That meant that the individual component prices began to shift over time. So. At the time that he made this observation, he said that the ideal number of components for an integrated circuit was 50. <laughs> Folks, we're in the billions now. Uh-huh. But at the time, it was 50. 50 components. That was where you hit the lowest price per component. But he said this was twice as good as the year before. And then that, and that was twice as good as the year before it. So he said, well, I, I think this is going to continue. I project that within five years, the lowest cost per component on an integrated circuit would be realized with circuits having around a 1,000 components. So to d- the day he makes the observation, it's 50. Five mm-hmm. years from then, he's saying it's going to be a 1,000. We're just going to see this trend continue. And he says there's no reason you can't project this out further. And he said that uh, by the time you would get to 1975, it would be 65,000 components. He was talking about it essentially doubling, more or less doubling, every single year. He says eventually you would probably have to make some adjustments. Mm-hmm. You might hit a point where this this trend continues, but it slows down. And in fact, that is what we saw, right? We saw it go from uh, every 12 months to really more like between 18 and 24, depending upon the, the time span you're looking at. Right. Um, and that was – Incredible that he made this observation and that it was so prescient and so accurate. And that's why we often call it Moore's Law. Yeah. Although we don't necessarily – I think the the wider interpretation isn't focused so uh, heavily on the economic side of things. Yeah. So as a point of illustration of exactly what this looks like in terms of the, the hardware in our devices, mm-hmm. there was a great example I found in a piece uh, that was in The Economist. Mm-hmm. And it highlighted this fact. When Intel released its first microprocessor in 1971, this was called the, the 4004. Yeah. And uh, the, the 4004, uh, that chip was 12 square millimeters and it had 2,300 transistors. And the gap between each transistor was 10,000 nanometers, mm-hmm. which is about the width of a red blood cell. They say, you know, a kid with a decent microscope could see the individual transistors. Okay. Intel's Skylake chips in 2016 are a little bit uh, different. Yeah. These chips are at a spacing of 14 nanometers between transistors. So that's 10,000 nanometers to 14. Yeah. And they're not only invisible to the naked eye, they're, they're even invisible to any normal microscope. Right. Light, the wavelengths of light are too big yeah. for us to be able to see this. You have to use like a scanning yeah. microscope, electron scanning microscope. So here, here's two factors that are important in this. Like one is that the individual components, we were able to shrink them down mm-hmm. to, to increasingly smaller sizes, which is a weird way of putting it, but it, gets a point across. And we were able to pack them together more densely. We were yeah. able to decrease the spaces between those components. Yeah. Because we both be- both miniaturization and architecture. Right. You know, we we're getting really, really good at various types of, of lithography and other methods of uh, developing and laying out these these circuits. Um, and that was what allowed us to continue on to a ridiculous degree when you think about it. I mean, you're talking about from a time where it was 50 components to literally billions now. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to wrap your mind around it. And again, this was really all about how 
Moore was saying, this only makes sense if it makes economic sense, right? right? It, it will only work to the point where companies can do this and have it be a product that they can make a profit selling. If it gets to a point where it's too difficult to do, too difficult translates to too expensive, uh-huh. right? The harder something is to do, the more expensive it is to do it. Well, there's all kinds of stuff you can do in the lab that just doesn't make sense from a consumer perspective. Yeah, and it, it if it's one of those things where you get to a point where it's just too much trouble than what it's worth, then Moore's Law breaks down. Because again, it's not that it's technically impossible, it's that it's economically not Productive, mm-hmm. and if it's not economically productive, no one's going to no one's going to lose money just trying to uh, to get across an engineering hurdle that has been problematic. It's sort of like saying, you know, could you engineer me a car that goes three hundred miles per hour? I, you know, I bet somehow if we were going to be willing to pour all of our resources into that. We could do that. Just why? Yeah. There, there's no reason to do that. It doesn't make any economic sense. There's no economic imperative for I, it. I can do that easily. You just have to find a height la- tall enough to drop the car <laughs> off of. <laughs> and then, I mean, you know, I'm just saying technically I can get it up to 300 miles per hour. <laughs> yeah. It's, you're not going to be able to do anything with it. Uh, uh, well, you also, if you were to make a car, that, a consumer car that goes 300 miles per hour, you, you'd introduce problems based sort of on physics and the limitations of drivers. Like I would say you'd well, how should I put this? You'd you'd increase the error rate of that car, and that in fact leads us into one of the fundamental issues that are that we face now in our production of these incredibly complicated microprocessors. Now, one thing I should say is that we haven't necessarily seen the number of components double every. 18 to 24 months over the past few years, right? That was right. the original definition of Moore's Law. Though in Moore's Law does still seem to hold in a more abstracted sense, which is yeah. the, the way it trickles down to the consumer is that you can expect every 18 to 24 months your computing devices will be twice as fast. Right. Twice that, twice as fast or the the processing power is twice as much. Some some variation of that. That tends yeah. to be how we define Moore's law now is that every 18 to 24 months like if you buy a computer today in 2 years the computer you buy that day will be twice as powerful yeah. as the one that you just bought and that it just shows the rapid development of technology and the speed at which we can uh, improve processing that that tends to be how we focus on Moore's law but even that is starting to get difficult so even when we got to the point where we were no longer saying all right we're not not so much worried about how many components are you adding but how you uh, how you best utilize those so that you get the most out of them. Yeah. Uh, we still run into problems. So one of the things we've seen is that uh, we've seen companies like Intel take a TikTok approach. That's mm-hmm. what they actually call their strategy when they're creating new types of microprocessors. And uh, the TikTok approach means that you have uh, two different generations of processors uh, that are kind of piggybacked onto each other. And in fact, they, they chain up to the previous generations. Mm-hmm. So the tick generation is, uh, not blue and nigh invulnerable and has a sidekick named Arthur. The tick generation is when you shrink down those components to a, a smaller size. We're talking on the nano scale now, right? Like 
it used to be that 40 nanometers was considered the the super small components. Now we're talking about getting down to like less than 10 nanometers per component. That's insanely small. When you get down to uh, that size, that becomes the tick where you say, all right, we're going to build it on the same architecture as the previous generation's microprocessors. Right. But now everything is just smaller, so we can pack stuff in, more more pieces in. So uh, we're using the same chassis, but now we've got way more components in there. Mm-hmm. The talk is when they figure out, hey, now we know how to design all those little components so that they work best. They work – and because the architecture from one generation to the next may not be the most efficient, right? Like mm-hmm. you may need to change that. Especially for stuff like heat dispersal. Heat is a real problem yep. with microprocessors. Uh, so the talk, that would be when you figure out, all right, here's the architecture that works best with this size. And then you would go to the next tick, which means everything's even smaller. And then the next talk where everything has been uh, laid out in the most ideal way possible. So uh, so here's a question, though. Yeah. Is that tick-tock of the clock counting up or counting down? It's counting down, buddy. So – we're hitting some fundamental limitations just because of our good old buddy physics, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, it's not like the nanoscale is as small as it gets. You can go down to the atomic scale, right? Only problem is that as you're getting down to the nanoscale and the atomic scale, something else starts to play a role in your designs, and that's quantum physics. Yep. You don't need to worry about that on the classical side, really. Quantum physics at that point becomes negligible. You're not you're not so much worried about yeah. weird quantum effects. To bring back the car, I mean, you don't have to go to relativity to understand the physics of designing a car. Right. Yeah, we, we don't have components on our cars that go down to such the nanoscale where you have to think, oh, wait a minute, quantum tunneling. But yeah. we do have to worry about it with microprocessors. Right. And quantum tunneling in particular, I mean, there are a lot of – quantum effects that we could talk about, but quantum tunneling in particular is a problem. Uh, It leads to what some folks call electron leakage, which just sounds gross. (laughs) But here's what's happening. So quantum tunneling is this phenomenon you get where you have a a quantum particle. In this case, we're talking about electrons. Mm -hmm. And a quantum particle has uh, kind of a range of of uh, probabilities of where it can be at any given time. Right. Uh, so we've talked a little bit in previous episodes about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, yeah. right? We don't know where it is. We know where it could be. Right, right. We've got a general idea of the area where within that area somewhere, that's where the particle is. Mm-hmm. But it could be anywhere within that one area. So instead of thinking of an electron as a point, think of a a kind of a, a nebulous fog of war like circle and the electron could be anywhere within that circle. All right. Now with microprocessors, you have these things called gates. Mm-hmm. And the gates allow either allow electrons to pass through or do not allow electrons to pass through. In terms of effects, I would say uh, they're logic gates. The yeah. ga- gates in a, in a processor are sort of the the ability of your brain to tell the difference between yes and no. Right. And so if you think about computer processing, ultimately you're talking about very, 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 very complicated uh, approaches to just having lots and lots of yes or no questions. Uh-huh. Right? I mean, logic gates, you build logic gates by having all these different channels and by opening some channels and closing off others, that's where you create the 
the uh, language that ultimately becomes the commands for the computer and you end up getting to play your Call of Duty game or whatever it may be. <laughs> so let's say you've got this Heisenberg uncertainty principle at play and let's say you've shrunk down the components to such a degree that when you get close to one of these gates, it's so thin that part of the cloud of probabilities that that electron could inhabit overlaps the gate so that part of it is on the other side of the gate. Mm -hmm. So if you can think of it like a flashlight, imagine that you're shining a flashlight on uh, on an actual little like barrier and part of the flashlight you can see like the the circle of light, part of it is on the is on one side of that barrier and part of it's on the other side of the barrier. Think of that, like that's the potential of where the electron could be. Now, if there's a probability for an electron to be in a specific location, that means sometimes the electron is in that specific location. So if the probability field of the electron actually overlaps the gate, that means sometimes the electron's on the other side of the gate, whether you've opened the gate or not. And so sometimes the brain of your electronic device can't tell the difference between yes and no. Right. It may think that it's a yes when, in fact, it was supposed to be a no. Uh-huh. That's where you get electron leakage, where electrons are leaking through the system and inserting errors into your calculations. For computers, this is what we call a bad thing. Uh-huh. Like you want your calculations to be reliable, and if they're not, then com- programs are going to crash, files will get corrupted. You won't get you won't get good behavior out of your computer. And we've been hitting up against <laughs> this. What I, I was trying to say? No, don't go into the room with the groove. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. So I wanted to, I wanted to go east and open the mailbox. Um, yeah. Now when we get to that point, then. That's that's an issue, and that's where we've been bumping up against over the last few years. Now, we keep seeing engineers come up with new materials that help edge us away from that. Mm-hmm. But it's something that has been an issue for the last several generations of microprocessors. Another issue with the design of microprocessors you already touched on, but I was going to mention uh, wasting energy is heat. Yeah, and not just wasting energy. Well, but, yeah, so there's wasting energy, but also just the problem of accumulating heat. Right, if, if a chip gets too hot, it'll... It'll lock up. It'll shut down, right? Exactly. So you continually shrink these components and increase transistor density, but this cuts into your ability to disperse all of the waste energy that they create as heat. Yeah. How do you end up cooling all those billions of components so that they can continue to operate without getting to that that critical threshold of heat? It's not a perfect analogy, but I would say it's sort of like trying to cram more computers into a server bank. Oh, sure. And if you just keep cramming more and more in, well, that's great. You can fit more computers into that tiny little room, but eventually the room's going to get really hot. Yeah, and if you don't have a good capacity to cooling that room down, then eventually those machines break down. They stop. Um, you You may have heard that in overclocking competitions where people are trying to massively push the limits of what their processors can do, they might go to such extremes as cooling their systems with liquid nitrogen right? in order to, to get rid of that heat because since they're running them so hard, 
they're generating even more heat than they normally would. And these are like top of the line processors. Oh, I, uh, I have a friend actually who is buying himself an insane computer and he, he's going to get a liquid cooled computer. Yeah. Liquid cooled is, is pretty standard for things like a high end gaming rig these days because I, it's, it's I more did, efficient than air cooling. I did not know that. I mean, I knew that you could do that, but I did not know that liquid cooled computers were things somebody just have in their house as opposed to in a lab somewhere. Right. Yeah. I would say that about f- maybe four or five years ago, it became kind of like the gold standard of how to cool your gaming rig. Before that, it was all you know, uh, GPUs that had their own dedicated fans. So mm-hmm. you'd get more and more fans inside your computer, which would make it louder and louder. Uh, but uh, it's not as unusual now as it used to be. It used to be like that was if you had ridiculous amounts of money and you wanted to really increase your swagger around the the PC gaming circles, uh-huh. you would invest in a water cooled system. It's it's less un it's less extravagant now. It's still pretty extravagant, but it's not ridiculous. It's not like the Rolls Royce uh, like it used to be. Yeah. But yeah, we've seen engineers work really really hard to get around these problems, but that can only go so long, right? right? You do start to bump up against this issue. And and by by saying engineers working really, really hard to get around these problems, that's where we're starting to see where the 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 issue really is. Like we said at the very beginning, Moore said, as long as it's economically yeah. advantageous, as long as it makes sense from a, a money standpoint, this will continue. So those engineers working really hard – Somebody's got to pay their salaries. Exactly. And if they have to work really hard for a really long time, that technology gets really expensive. So this kind of leads us to a recent report called the International Technology Roadmap for Semiconductors, or ITRS, which was an annual report. Or ITERS. Yeah, ITERS. Uh, it was an annual report until until this most recent one, which was technically the 2015 ITRS, but it oh, came out this year. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to step on your emphasis of was. You're saying it was yeah, a report. Like it's done. Yeah. The, this was the last one that came out. This the most recent one is the mm. final one. Bye-bye. Shed a tear for itters. Yep. Uh, so they found that by 2021, so not far at all, we will no longer be shrinking transistors. We will have reached a limit that's now, five years, folks. Five years. Five years, we will no longer be making smaller components for these microprocessors. We will have gone as small as we can go. Now, when I say as small as we can go, I don't necessarily mean that we'll have reached a physical limitation, like as in the laws of physics will deny us the ability to go any smaller. But from an economic standpoint, that will be as small as we can go because at that point, it will be so complicated that to try and go smaller would be more expensive than you could ever recapture. So I've got an idea. I think instead we need to be paying these engineers to design a simulated universe that we can all plug into in which there are ways to make cheaper, smaller microprocessors. But if they do that, then it's clear that we already exist in a simulated universe and then we all have existential dread. Well, of course we do. We all got to wait until that time somebody gets bored and turns us off. If we get to a point where we can create a simulated universe – 
the argument from a philosophical standpoint is that we must already be in a simulated universe. Oh yeah, I know that argument. Yeah. Because because the because simulated the odds, universes will outnumber the real universes. Right, and the odds of us being the first universe to create a simulated universe would be incredibly small. Well, we're getting off topic. Oh yeah, we are, but that's a fun <laughs> fun thing to talk about. Anyway, so Existential dread set aside. <laughs> Let's take real dread. By 2021, we cannot get those those components any smaller for whatever reason. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we've reached the end of the advancement of computer power or computer speed. Yes. It, so some people have said, does this mean Moore's law itself would end? And the answer is not really. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that answer is because, again, we have – tweaked our definition of Moore's Law enough so that if we're taking it from the definition of every 18 to 24 months, we're able to double the processing speed or power of a computer. That is something we could probably continue to do for a few more years. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, what we would have to do is find new ways of designing microprocessors beyond what traditionally we have concentrated on. So your typical microprocessor you can think of as essentially two-dimensional, right? It's laid out on an XY grid, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've made the ver- various little components very tiny. So you could think of the the actual squares in that grid are on the nanoscale. They're really, really small. So we've packed a ton of them into that little form factor, but we've still really only focused on width and length. We haven't gone into another dimension, the the height dimension. Now, that sounds like that introduces a whole other world of design constraints. and uh, Yeah, yeah. And when you want to go vertical, which is exactly what a lot of people are talking about now, doing vertical stacks of transistors, so you're building transistors on top of transistors, not just left and right, but on top of each other. How do you have them communicate with each other? How do you build vertical transistor gates and logic gates? How do you cool that? Because now you're increasing the density of transistors even more by going up, not just going out. Right. And by that, you're going to create more heat. So you got to figure out how to disperse that heat. Uh, one of the, the arguments I've seen is using microfluidic channels and some form of magic heat dispersal liquid. <laughs> I think I've seen stuff about microfluidic channels. Uh, one of now, the- I should, I guess, maybe insert here that to manage the heat issue, I have seen proposals of getting away from silicon. Yeah. Uh, now, I don't know if that's ever going to be an ec- economically feasible alternative, but that's one thing people talk about is like go- going to carbon nanotube-based computing or something like that. Right. Uh, which they, they think can do a better job of uh, – of managing heat problems. Yeah, and that would that would definitely at least buy us some more time. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, the ITRS says that we will still hit a fundamental limit and in 2024, so just a few years after our first fundamental limit. Mm-hmm. But this limit would be due to the fact that we would reach peak heat density in a silicon-based chip. Yeah. And if we are using silicon and we're building vertically we won't be able to pack more transistors into a space after 2024 because we'll be generating so much heat that we will not be able to disperse it fast enough to allow it to continue to work. It will break down just because the heat it generates will be too much for it to handle. So uh, that's a real issue. Uh, we probably will see a lot of innovation around those cooling systems. Uh, the Ars Technica piece that I read that kind of inspired this episode 
had mentioned the possibility of electronic blood. Huh? Yeah, kind of a, a kind of a, a electronic version of blood that would that would just recirculate throughout the system and pull heat away. Did not I did not click on it to go into another piece to read up on exactly what that was because I love Ars Technica. I love that site. Great site. Those guys know their stuff. And when you get through one Ars Technica piece, you're like, I might need to take a break before I read another one. <laughs> but they're great. That, that's not, that's not, that's more of a limitation on my own brain power than on Ars Technica. Um, I really do like that site a lot. So. You need it, some of that electronic blood for your brain. Obviously, I do. It's, so it's possible that we will hit a limit within our lifetimes that we just cannot work around using this silicon-based technology, right? We may hit a point where we say, okay, that's it. That's as, that's as many transistors as we can fit. That's, and we'll, we'll be able to play with the arrangement for a while, but eventually we're going to hit the idealized version of that. And then that's as, that's as peak as we can get with this particular form factor. Uh, now, it might mean at that point that we have to build bigger processors, right? Like yeah. that the size may increase, which means that computer sizes will increase. It also means that you will quickly get to a point where it's impractical for handheld devices. Right. So we may see our handheld devices max out on their processing power well before we see computers do it. Oh, my God. What if we go back to desktop machines? What if we go back to machines that are taking up, like, an entire room or an entire floor of a building? We used to make jokes about that all the time. Yeah, and now... Remember how big computers used to be? Now they fit in your hand? Well, that might be the future. Yeah, we may not be able to avoid it once we hit these fundamental limits unless, again, like Joe was saying, we find a totally new way of creating uh, either the chips that we're used to now but using different materials mm-hmm. so that the heat dispersal ends up we we're able to push that off a little further or we come up with an entirely new way of processing information so that we can you know build on that well that's something that I kind of wanted to end with here not that we have any answers on this but I do think it's an interesting question to ponder Essentially, what will the future physical side of computing look like? Because we've entered a a sort of stage of humanity where exogenous computing, information processing taking place outside of the human brain, is a fundamental part of our culture and who we are. Mm -hmm. And I think that's always going to have to be a part of what humanity is from now on. But will it always have to take place based on the same physical architecture? So right now we have silicon chips. Yep. People are playing with other things like, you know, carbon nanotube computers and stuff like that. There are experimental things, but mostly it's still all these silicon microprocessors. Mm -hmm. But, but what else could there be? I mean, computing is an abstract concept and it's it's obvious how the concept of a, a semiconductor as an electronic device enables it by allowing sort of on and off switches yeah. that allow you to perform logical operations. But I wonder what are the things that are that are next? What's out there that we're not seeing? What are ways to use the material and the energy of the universe to process information for us? I think in the short term, this is just uh, me kind of talking off the top of my head, it would be – offloading all of that computing to a third party that doesn't worry so much about the space constraints of having enormous numbers of processors to use. So in other words, 
it's again that movement to having your your terminal being more like a dumb terminal. Like mm-hmm. it would have it would have processing capabilities of its own, but it would be leveraging the processing capabilities of a much more powerful machine with lots of processors that is run by some company like Amazon or Google or something along those lines. And that at that point you're really more focused on the bandwidth issue between your device and home base that's doing all the computing. It's like streaming based gaming versus uh yeah, which which native gaming has not worked out great so uh-huh. far because of things like latency and other issues. I mean, we've seen streaming based gaming services come and go. Uh, I think it was a fine idea. I just don't think that the the uh, the realization of that idea was powerful enough to justify moving to one of those platforms. Mm-hmm. But that might not always be the case. We may see that change. Um, in the long term, if you're talking about like, well, that's uh, at some point you're going to hit the peak of that too, right? You're like, it's just not going to make sense that hey, we need to add uh, 18 new machines to the farm over there, um, mm-hmm. you know, because we've got to be able to. There's a, a new new Halo game has come out, and they had a jetpack, so it's a thing. No, it's I, I think it, we will be looking at truly experimental work, uh, ways to do computing. Well beyond what classic computer science has taught us, it'll just it'll have to it'll be out of necessity. We'll have to develop that, and you know we'll see other variations. Like we'll see like quantum computing. But as we've stated in previous episodes, quantum computing is great for certain types of computer problems, mm-hmm. but is no better than classical computers with other types of computational processing. Right. So if you wanted to do a classic computer problem, uh, or you wanted to play a game. Uh, you know, let's say let's stick with gaming. You wanted to play a, a high-end computer game. A quantum computer is not going to run it better. In fact, it may run it much worse than a classical computer. But if you have a great problem that is specifically uh, designed to to be solved by things like parallel processing, a quantum computer could be a great job. Could do a great job at that. Right. It could also end up breaking all the encryption and all over the world and record time, which is kind yeah. of terrifying, but we've talked about that in previous episodes. Um, yeah, so we've still got some time with Moore's Law. Maybe by 2024. We'll enjoy our years together. Yeah, a little less than a decade from now, we might actually say, well, guys, uh, don't make more complicated software for a while, okay? <laughs> you can't stop them. It's going gonna, it's gonna to continue to bloat. You can't stop them. Well, yeah, but if you no longer have an increase in processing power, that bloat eventually gets to a point where you can't run it on the machine, and then you do have to stop. That's not their problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> it kind of is. When that PC Magazine article comes out, <laughs> PC World Magazine comes out and says, yeah, this software doesn't run because it's too complicated for any existing computer you got to back off a little bit. But yeah, this was an interesting subject. I'm glad that we tackled it and it was fun to revisit Moore's Law. It's one of those subjects I always love to chat about because, one, it's – I think it's widely misrepresented uh, in in casual conversations and media coverage. A lot of people don't talk about what the, the actual original intent was behind it mm-hmm. and also just – 
you know, every few years you see discussions of Moore's laws coming to an end. I wonder if we could find – I actually tried to look for this before the episode, but I couldn't find anything. Uh, but I'm sure somewhere out there is the the great first the end of Moore's law. Article. Yeah, I like, would love did to it see happen in the 1980s, the 1990s. I'm sure it was in the 80s. I'm sure it was in the 80s. I would love to see a timeline of all the major articles that have come out that said Moore's law is over or whatever, because I'm sure it has happened at least a dozen times. Um, and you know the the remarkable thing is that engineers have found new ways to defy the end of Moore's law and keep it going. So it's entirely possible that within a decade we're talking about a totally new technology that does continue the spirit of Moore's law, even if it has moved away from uh, what we think of as traditional uh, integrated circuit components. Mm-hmm. Who knows? It's a tall order, but. You know, once upon a time, the transistor didn't exist. So it's not like we're talking about something that is beyond uh, entire. You know, it's not that it's completely implausible. I mean, right. It's it might be a long shot, but it's still possible. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode. And uh, hopefully in our next one, Lauren will be back with us and we'll be able to uh, jump back into the future again. Like we love to do. If you guys have suggestions for future episodes or you've got any comments or questions, send them to us. Our email address is fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or drop us a line on Twitter. We're fwthinking there or ju- just uh, search fwthinking in Facebook. Our profile will pop up. You can leave us a message and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, guys. Back at the playground again, huh? Yep. You know what this playground could use? A wine country. Heck, yeah. And some waves. So we could go surfing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I love that. A redwood forest would be cool. I'm in. Ah, ski slopes. Let's do it. Um, can a girl go shopping? Yeah, baby. Wait. Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com. 
Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home.